Hey, everybody. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Rachel Kahn, whose debut novel, Goodbye Vitamin, was just released by Henry Holt. Rachel is also the author slash editor of the cookbook All About Eggs, and her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in a ton of places, including Tin House, Joyland, San Francisco Chronicle, and The Believer. Rachel is a fantastic writer and a fantastic human, who I first met when she was an editor at the weird and wonderful food magazine Lucky Peach. R.I.P. Lucky Peach. Goodbye Vitamin tells the story of an adrift 30-year-old named Ruth, who moves back to her childhood home to help her parents cope with her father's worsening Alzheimer's. When I wrote for Rachel at Lucky Peach, her edits were some of the most, if not the most, insightful and sensitive I've ever received, so I am thrilled but not at all surprised by the praise that Goodbye Vitamin is getting for its deep intelligence, wry humor, and huge heart. Rachel started working on Goodbye Vitamin in 2010, and the conversation you're about to hear was recorded way back in February, because Rachel was one of the first people I wanted to record when I started WMFA. In this episode, we discuss her fascination with memory and forgetting, the narrative structure that helped her get around the belief that she could never write a novel, and one of her favorite writing spots in San Francisco. I'd always wanted to be a writer, yes, which was um, incompatible with the fact that writing was not a real job. Do you want to tell everybody the premise of the novel? Yeah, um, so the premise is essentially that a 30-year-old woman named Ruth uh, goes home to Southern California to visit her parents over the holidays. And um, her mom asks her to stay for the year with her dad, who has uh, pretty recently been diagnosed with dementia. And um, so this woman, her name is Ruth, and things have kind of not been working out for her in um, the way that she thought they would. And she's sort of just recently broken up with her fiance. She's in this job that she likes, but she's not really special at. And so she decides to say yes and to stay home with her dad. Um, And yeah, the book is not very plot heavy. It's essentially about that year that she spends at home with her dad, um, both trying to help him you know, come to terms with his illness and also just figure things out for herself um, and try to be okay or try to feel okay. You had this great piece for Lucky Peach a couple years ago uh, that sort of merged these two stories, one about this daily food journal that you've kept for a really long time and the other about this NASA-funded study about eating on Mars. And it was a lot about new mnemonic devices. Food is a mnemonic device. What is it about memory that that compels you? Um, I think part of it is just that I have a really terrible memory. And uh, it's just so interesting to me that it's different for every person, you know, like I've met people who, um, are, have amazing photographic memories. Like I once dated this guy in college who could tell me like down to the color of my tights, what I was wearing on certain days that we saw each other. And that has always been really fascinating to me. Um, Did that freak you out or did you find that like incredibly romantic? Well, I think I found it romantic at the time. And then in retrospect, I was like, what the hell was that? (laughs) Um, But yeah, like it, it's it's just a a weird thing. And memories, um, I think what is also concerning to me is that they make up your life, essentially, you know, like what you remember is what happened and um the selectiveness of it and how your memory can sort of tend toward the happy or the disappointing um i think has always been really interesting to me and something that um is also very worrying to me and so that was uh yeah why i decided to to sort of probe that in this book and explore it. Because it's not like what happens, it's your story you tell yourself about what happens. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, yeah, in relationships, um, people remember different things. And I, I think that like, I, I can't remember where I read this, but you know, just the fact that, uh, couples who have more of these shared memories and these like shared narratives, um, are generally happier. Uh, that's always been really interesting and scary too, to me, you know, like if you don't remember something that someone else does, or if you hang on to someone, some, if you hang on to something that the other person has completely forgotten, then, um, where does that leave you? And what does that mean for the future of your, your relationship? Yeah. I've never thought about that. That makes you want to just like keep having states of the union. Like, okay. Yeah, right. exactly. Like, Hey, yeah. What do you think about what happened last night? And wasn't it great that I made you a roast chicken? <laughs> do you do any other sort of memory keeping journaling or, or any other logs like your food diary? I actually kind of recently, just this year, actually, I started keeping this thing called the five year diary. And, um, it's this book that was put together by, uh, Tamara Shopson, who I actually collaborated with on the egg book. And she's just this amazing designer and illustrator. Shopson, like the restaurant? Yes. She is Kenny Shopson's daughter and she's amazing. And she's also a really great writer herself. She has, I think a book coming out and this beautiful memoir that came out a few years ago, but, um, Tamara has this book that she designed and it's just this empty notebook essentially that has um, a few lines for every day for essentially five years. And um, it'll be like a page that says, you know, February 1st, and then you fill in the the year for each of the entries. And so the point is that you can sort of compare and contrast the same day in like over the course of five years, five different years and have some perspective on like how your life has been going I guess it's really brilliant and it's really fun I've only I only started it in May so I don't even have that full year yet yeah but it's really nice to just um write in it at the end of every day it's only a few lines so there's not even that much space you can essentially just you know, like write a few sentences, um, highlights from the day or sometimes, sometimes it's so boring that I just, you know, I really have nothing to say. And I just say like worked at this cafe, ate a piece of mortadella or whatever. But <laughs> I, this past summer did the artist way book and have started doing the like the morning pages prompt that she does with that. I don't know if you're familiar with this. I don't know. No, tell me about it. The Artist Way is this woman, Julia Cameron, and she is kind of, I mean, she's done all kinds of things. Like she's a screenwriter and she's written novels, I think, and she's written all kinds of stuff. But like her, she has this big thing that is like kind of a course on creativity and it's this workbook and um, like you can do it on your own. I did it on my own, but I've talked to friends who have done it as like like they came together as like a class and you can like hire um like people who have been trained in it to like come teach you and stuff and so it's like it's just very introspective and a little woo woo but in like the way that's like right in my wheelhouse so I was very into it um but one of the two so she's got these two kind of chores that you have to like commit to it's all about sort of like committing to like being an artist and sort of like taking yourself seriously in that way. And one of the, so one of them is this idea of an artist date, um, which is something I'm terrible at making time for. But the idea is that every week you like make it a date and treat it as a commitment that like you kind of like refill the well and go do something that inspires you. And that can mean like anything. Um, and then the other is this morning pages. So it's just like three pages every morning, like just constantly be writing does don't worry about it that kind of thing um and it's fascinating like I had never I've never been a journaler and I've always kind of felt like I should be a journaler because I feel like writers are often journalers and I'm kind of like what is like deficient in me that I don't like keeping a journal um but this is really good I think the page limit helps and then I'm amazed at just like the first thing in the morning aspect of it how many thoughts you kind of put together in the morning and like like I get like really good ideas from it or I sort of like work out problems in writing like just in writing as I'm as I'm making these notes um it's been really kind of incredible 
Yeah, I, I'm really into the um, writing right after you wake up thing. Like, I feel like that's a good time to write because there's just something operating, you know, like subconsciously that you're not even fully aware of and you can really surprise yourself. Is your usually? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a morning writer for sure. And I, I normally just, yeah, I try to write as close to waking up as possible. So what's a good writing day? Like, are you writing, um, at your apartment, you mentioned going to a cafe earlier. Do you prefer to work in cafes? I, yeah, try my best to force myself to go to a cafe. I was at a cafe today and I, I'm a big cafe fan. You know, I really love just like having other people around, um, that kind of like ambient noise of like espresso being ground. And I kind of have to like force myself to leave the house and wear structured clothing (laughs) because otherwise it's just too tempting to stay in pajamas and to do chores and things. Um, even right now I'm wearing jeans and I think there's like a, a piece of gravel or something in one of my pant legs but I'm feeling like it's making me a stronger, more productive person. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm really into cafes. I, uh, if I can't get to a cafe, this is kind of embarrassing, but I um, go to this website called rainycafe.com. And it's like, I think a Japanese website, um, the whole idea is that you're more creative when there's some kind of white noise happening. So, uh, you have the option on rainycafe.com to either turn on a, like a rainstorm sound or a cafe sound, which has like, you know, like clinking glasses and plates and people chatting. Um, and you can also like turn the, uh, (laughs) the storm or the cafe to different levels. So you can have like 80% cafe and 20% 20% rainstorm. Um, and that's, so that's what I do if I have, if I am forced to work in a, in a quiet spot. I, ha- I use a very similar thing, a website called Noisly, and it all, it has the same idea. You can kind of adjust the levels of things, but it's really funny. I can't use the rainy settings because they make me sleepy. <laughs> my, my ideal is like, there's like a kind of forest one or like there's one with like train tracks. Yeah. Like train tracks and wind. I that's like, well, you should go on Spotify because there's a huge collection of all of these sounds, in- including people chewing. If that somehow if that somehow inspires you, there's just like chewing various um, substances. Like there's like people chewing rice, people chewing potato chip. I can't believe there are subcategories of people chewing. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> It's really useful, um, but also really the opposite of useful, I guess. So are you one of those people that like you'll be in the cafe and you you make like six different purchases in a day and it's like, I'm here for my breakfast and now I'm here for my lunch and now I guess I'm leaving. Well, I feel kind of bad about this because I'm like very austere in my cafe choices. Like I only ever get a black coffee and sit there. And so I compensate for that by tipping a lot. I really, I, you know, like I don't ever buy food, food at cafes. I only buy the coffee and I can really camp out for a long time because if I'm like in the middle of something, sometimes I just don't even realize that I've been sitting there for hours. But yeah, no, I, I, it's like a daily struggle where I'm like, Oh, I should, I should just buy a muffin but I don't even want a muffin. I just want (laughs) a cup of coffee and to sit there. Um, and if I, if I do get hungry, this is another embarrassing thing. I will sometimes bring like a roasted sweet potato. The sweet potato for some reason is like the perfect dense snack. And I guess it depends on the cafe that I'm in. Like some of the cafes I go to, um, are food friendly but sometimes I'm working in the library and uh, I, there's this library that I really love. It's called the Mechanics Institute in San Francisco. And it's, you know, like a private library and also chess room. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, like if I'm working there, um, you know, you're not really supposed to eat while you're in the library. So I have been known to 
hide away in the luxurious bathroom and just like scarf down <laughs> a single roasted sweet potato. That's such a good quote. I love that so much. <laughs> so so you're not a fan of writing at home, um, but you do have a cabin that you go to write to sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that is a little bit of a long story. I mean, I got this cabin. Um, it's about an hour and a half, an hour, 45 minutes north of San Francisco. Um, got it a few years ago with the help of a relative. And um, yeah, I just go up there occasionally uh, to write and be alone and be even weirder than I normally am. <laughs> and, and, and the rest of the time I rented out on Airbnb. So that has been a nice way to um, generate some, some money for my lavish lifestyle. <laughs> Do you find that there's a certain point in a writing project where you're like ready to go to the cabin? Is it a like, you know, is it good for a certain type when you need a certain type of writing done? Yeah, it's definitely good for um, those times when you really need a lot of focus. Um, you know, I feel like I like to write in this like sort of state of half focus where in terms of the, the, the generative, the like generative part of writing, you know, the creative part, I think it's good to not be too nearsighted or farsighted. I don't know to, you know, to be too like focused on the thing in front of you and to like, let yourself wander or let, let the project go where it needs to go and let yourself be surprised by what happens. Um, but then, you know, when it's time for revision, that's, I think when you really need to hunker down and I feel like the cabin is good for, for those periods. Um, when it's just, you know, can't go on the internet at all. Um, need to go to sleep thinking about the thing that I'm working on and to wake up still thinking about it and getting right back on board. Right. I mean, internet is a really tricky thing. <laughs> Something that I have just figured out recently for myself is turning off my cell phone, maybe around like 10 PM or even like eight or nine. And turning it to like airplane mode so that I can't, you know, like get any emails, get any texts, go on Instagram. Like sometimes I'll just find myself picking up my phone and like pressing something at random, just like out of impulse. And it's just such a waste of time. And it's, it's, it has been really annoying, I think. So, so something that I found recently is just to, you know, like turn, I just turn my cell phone off, turn it to airplane mode at night. And then I just don't turn it back on until, um, I'm kind of done with my work for the morning, or at least like done with my most creative work. And then, and then I get the reward of turning my phone on and like seeing that like nothing interesting has happened. <laughs> the world has managed to keep turning. And yeah. you, you have not died for not having access to information constantly. Yeah, exactly. I love that. I have a friend who has recently been doing this, a similar thing of kind of making this ritual at like nine o'clock every night, like locking his, not, I don't think he actually locks them, but like puts his like iPad and his laptop, like in his like media desk or whatever. And is just like, goodbye. We're done with you today. Yeah. I mean, I, I just like, don't like the power that it has over me and this like you know like I, I feel like a very susceptible addictive person and it's just not even something that I'm thinking of like sometimes um I don't use it anymore but I used to I think in college use that freedom app right um and I remember when I was using freedom that I would just move my mouse over to the internet browser and click on it and then open it and then see that I wasn't connected to the internet and it was just out of this habit. It wasn't even because I like desired to see anything on the internet. It was more just like a reflex. And, and so, yeah, like I don't use it anymore just cause I feel more able to, you know, just turn the internet off. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's so strange that that, that has become another thing um, to deal with. Yeah. And that's what I think is so, terrifying about it is the mindlessness of it yeah 
Yeah. And it really takes up all, I mean, it's, it's amazing how much like time flies when you're like looking at shirts online or something, you know, like versus like I set a timer every day when I write. Um, I set a timer too. I am very into timers. Yeah. I love timers. I love timers doing pretty much everything. Um, sometimes there are just some days when you've set the timer and you keep checking it (laughs) and you know, there's like 45 minutes left and, and you think, Oh my God, I can't, there's nothing. I have nothing left to contribute to this work document. What time do you set your timers for? Do you have like a, a pattern or are you just sort of gauging like, Oh, this project should take me two hours. Uh, no, I mean, it's just for, it's just for writing fiction in the morning just to, um, I think otherwise it's a little bit hard to feel that you're done for the day or feel that you've like accomplished something. So I think I just need to like play that mind trick on myself to just say like, I'm going to write for two hours. That's basically what I do every day. It's just write fiction for two hours. Um, and then to, you know, like whether I've written, you know, a couple hundred words or 2000 words in those two hours, um, to feel okay about that and to, um, just let it be what it is, but to, you know, feel that I have, I finished, finished the work for the day is like, that's essentially why I set the timers just to, just to give myself like this, this concrete goal for each day. What are you working on now? I'm working on, I think a new, a new book, but I, I'm not sure yet. Right. It might still turn out to be nothing. Although I have written, I think roughly a hundred pages of it. So I'm hoping it's not nothing because that will have been a lot of pages for nothing. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. And it's, it's the thing that I'm working on every morning. Are you, um, do you feel in fiction solidly a novel person? Do you like to do stories as well? I do do stories. I don't, um, I guess I never thought that I would be a novel person. You know, like I never imagined that I was capable of making a novel. And that is kind of why um, my first novel is the way that it is. It's very in pieces. It's kind of fragmented. Um, and that was, you know, a result of like reading these books, um, a lot of them by women that were shorter and very fragmented and um, more like glimpses than, you know, like really plot driven, huge tomes. Um, so yeah, I never thought that I would be able to write, to write a novel, but I think at some point in grad school, um, I realized I just had this epiphany that if I wrote a novel, it would be just one thing to struggle with and to hate versus, you know, if I wrote a story collection, which was what I had been working on at the time, there are just so many pieces in that. And, you know, each story was its presented its own set of problems and was its own puzzle. And so um, I just wanted to simplify that a little bit and streamline it. And that was why I, yeah, just hunkered down with this one project, just thinking like, okay, I don't have to wake up every day and worry about these five stories that I have and like all of their myriad problems. I just have the one, the one big story. Right. But yeah, I, uh, so, you know, like when I, I think I can't remember when I talked to you last, but I think at that point, you know, I had just left the job and didn't have a new project yet. I didn't really know what I was supposed to do next. You know, I knew that I wanted to be writing and writing my own things, but I didn't like, I, I just had no idea how to do that. It was, it was so different because, you know, like writing fiction at the same time that I was working 
the job, um, that just felt like an illicit activity that I, you know, like snuck away to do and like snuck in every now and then. Can you talk a little bit about how you worked that? Because I mean, being a magazine editor is really demanding in terms of both headspace and time commitment. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I think that the main, uh, just the, the main thing that I realized was that, you know, if I did a little bit every day, that was more than nothing. <laughs> and zero times zero is still zero, but you know, 0.1 times point, you know, times like 30 days would equal something at least. And so, um, so yeah, it was just really doing a little bit every day. I made this pact with a friend to meet at a cafe called Charlie's, um, just a couple times a week. We would meet on Mondays and Wednesdays before work, before going into our respective offices. And so we just met, um, I think it was like eight to 9am and then we would go to work afterward. And, um, I think that when I started doing that, the novel was mostly done. And so it was just a lot of um, revision and putting things together that happened in those really, you know, time crunched spaces. But, um, but yeah, that was how it happened. And, and the vacations that I took were essentially to go to the cabin or to just um, sequester myself um, to try to, you know, like push to finish the book. Was that all something that when you left grad school, speaking from my experience with grad school, I kind of left still not really clear. I realized very quickly about like what writing careers looked like. I think you, I think you like get, and I mean, I know you did a, you did a fiction program and I did a nonfiction program, but like, I was still kind of surprised to find that there aren't just jobs where you can just like be a staff writer, you know, like already that stuff kind of didn't really exist anymore. Um, and so I wonder just kind of, you know, if you want, if, if when you got into editing, you, that was a choice to get into editing or you were just like, Oh, well, are these the sorts of jobs I have to do? To, are these writing jobs? You know, like, did you have that sort of confusion as well? It was always, I always had the impression that writing was not a real job. Had you, had you always wanted to be a writer? I had always wanted to be a writer. Yes. Which was, um, incompatible with the fact that writing was not a real job. Um, and you know, so my, my parents, our family immigrated here when I was two, um, and, uh, from where? From Malaysia. And so my parents are both engineers. They moved, uh, to, well, we, we immigrated to Phoenix, Arizona, actually to Tempe, and um, sort of moved around a lot, these different desert towns. But, you know, as an immigrant's, as an immigrant family, um, I don't know, I, I always wanted to be a writer, but that was not something you could really say. <laughs> it's just like not, not something on my parents' radars. You know, they're both, they're both engineers. So it was a surprise to them. Uh, and they could not understand it. You know, like I would say, I want to be a writer thinking I wanted to write novels because I've always loved reading them. And they would say, Oh, you mean a journalist? Um, right. So that was, so that, so that was seared into my brain early on, you know, like writing is not a career, it's a hobby. And, you can become a journalist, you can work for a newspaper or a magazine, but writing books is not really a thing. <laughs> and so, so yeah, I think from early on, I wanted to be a writer, but I also had this practicality um, in the back of my head. Um, and so, you know, I was on the newspaper staff when I was in high school. I was also on the newspaper staff when I was in college. I was thinking that I would be some, like part of some kind of newspaper or magazine, and that was how I was going to make a living. Um, and if I wanted to write fiction, that would just be be an extra, I guess. So then what, uh, but you did go through an MFA, pro a creative writing program. Yeah, I did. So I, 
I'm trying to remember the whole trajectory. I guess I, you know, like graduated from college, moved to San Francisco because I had lived here one summer when I was doing an internship. And, um, yeah, I just kind of thought that I would get a job writing in some way. And then I would, um, you know, write my great American novel on the side for fun. (laughs) And, um, it didn't quite work out that way. I got a job at this internet startup called reputation defender, um, that was pretty grueling. I think I was paid by the, the word. I can't remember how much I was paid by the word, but it was not, not very much. And I remember I got carpal tunnel and I would have to rub like a eucalyptus balm or something on my, on my wrists <laughs> in the morning. Uh, but it was just, you know, like so much writing every day we were producing a lot of, I think I had to write something like 10,000 words a week in order to, to make ends meet, to like pay for my rent, to pay for life. Um, and it was just so much. And I, it was essentially writing a novel every couple months. Um, and when I, you know, sat back and kind of assessed that, I realized that this was not what I wanted to be doing. I couldn't do any of my great American novel writing on the side because that was like the the last thing that I wanted to do when I got home after work. Um, so, so yeah, I, I applied for MFA programs that, that year. And, um, I only applied to places that were fully funded and wouldn't get me into crazy debt. Cause you know, there's that practical, there's that practical voice in my head, like, you know, don't go into debt pursuing this thing that can, will only ever be a hobby for you. <laughs> But yeah, so, so I applied for programs, um, in the Midwest and in the South because I had never lived in those places before and got into the University of Florida's program. And so that was where I went. And did you go there with what would become Goodbye Vitamin already as an idea, kind of taking shape as some kind of draft? Yeah, no, I didn't at all. I mean, I only figured that out um, probably in the very last year of my program. You know, like in retrospect, I think, um, you know, everyone is always saying this and I would have scoffed at it when I was 22 or whatever. But I do think it is a smart idea to go to a program after you are a little bit older and, you know, have been out in the world a little bit longer than I was. Um, I had just been out of school for a year before I applied and yeah, well, I felt like I was so mature and had experienced all the things. (laughs) Um, it wasn't actually true. And I I spent those first 2.5 years just figuring out what my voice was and like what I cared about, what I wanted to write about. I don't really regret it. I don't, I think that the program is useful for people in both of those places. Maybe you get more out of it if you are like a more mature person who has a project in mind that you're ready to finish. And in that case, the MFA program is this total gift because you have so much time, you don't have to work and um, you just have this like time and finally like the energy to get it done. But for that other person who's also just figuring it out, I think it was also really useful for me to sort of grow up in that program and to like figure out what made me happy and what made me miserable in terms of working habits. There's just so much freedom. And I think that you have to come to terms with, yeah, like who you are as a person and what you, what you like and what you hate and what will make you filled with despair (laughs) To, to like being alone with yourself. Just all the time. Yeah. And you said to figure out what I care about. And I feel like that is such a deceptively hard question to answer for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to know what you're supposed to care about, right? Like, um, as a writer, the capital W and like the books that you cared about growing up or that maybe you want, like, made you want to be a writer um, and whatever themes those books t- 
tackle. I think that it's easy to know like, oh, I should be caring about um, like mortality or hope hopelessness or you know just there's just like these big themes these big male themes. depression i feel like is a yeah. major theme <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah midlife white male crises <laughs> what were the books that you read that made you want to be a writer do you remember you know i like i i don't have like a really intelligent answer answer for this i mean the books were books like I really loved the babysitter's club <laughs> and I really loved goosebumps and I really loved this book called the Island of the blue dolphins. But yeah, I, I read whatever I could get my hands on and, um, really indiscriminately. So I think those are great. <laughs> those are great answers. Like <laughs> certainly one of the most meaningful books of my life is Matilda by Roald Dahl. And that's like, yeah, a kid's book. Uh, it's so that's also so good. Also, Ramona Quimby. Did you read those books? I did not read Ramona Quimby. She was great. She okay. I'm just remember that, remembering this, but she there's one book in which she um, cracks an egg on her head, <laughs> and it all comes full circle. And it all comes full circle. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about the editor part of your writing life. Um, is it something that you miss now that you've been away from, I mean, quite apart from the practicality of, you know, having a full-time job and working on the novel, we're not compatible, but, you know, do you miss the act of editing other people? I'm actually doing a little bit of freelance editing, so I don't have to miss it that much. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do miss it. I have, um, outlets for it i i'm part of a writing group so that's a way that i get to um talk to other people about their work and obviously you know you have to edit you have to be editing your own work all the time so but it is it, it is a different muscle or a different skill and it's also something that i don't need full um like we, we were talking about um the morning as being a good time to write, I don't feel as constricted, um, by editing and like, you know, like the time slots that I need for editing, I could edit in the afternoon or at night, uh, because it does just feel like a different, um, and sometimes more fun part of the writing process. It's almost just like a puzzle that you put together. And so I, I love, I love editing and, you know, would love to keep, doing it. And like I said, I am doing some freelance editing. So that's, that's been nice for me. We're in kind of similar spaces in terms of projects that we're working on and, and like projects we have worked on. And I sometimes feel just this sort of funny sense of self-definition of like, oh, I thought I was a person who only did this thing. And now I do like X, Y, and Z things and just sort of catching that realization in moments and just sort of having to kind of note it and be like, oh, I'm a person who does that now too. Like it's just been sort of a funny, not bad or good, just kind of a slightly out of body experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like um, it's not uh, at all unique to us. You know, it's like sort of the kind of thing that a lot of people are doing these days for having to be, I mean, it's, you know, you don't have to only be the, um, the food writer or the TV personality or whatever it is, you know, like people are, um, viewed as people and able to have the interests that they have and, just exist, I guess. But I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know how I'm like, how, how to respond to people. I don't, not that you're asking this question, but like, you know, like, I think that sometimes it is kind of weird for people when I explain that I write about food, but I also am a novelist and I write fiction. Um, but but I think that it's, it's true of so many people, you know, like we have different interests and, um, and it's pretty boring to just be one, one thing. 
going back to the novel, what was it like, you know, writing it over such a long period? Does the final version now contain writing from kind of all of those periods? Or, you know, did you find that by the time you got to the end, it was a kind of wholly new thing? I just wonder about, like, the consistency over so much time and in so many different headspaces and places in your life. Yeah. um, Well, weirdly with the novel, and I think it's different. It's going to be different for every person and every project. But for me, for me, the, the novel, when I started it, I had the beginning and I had the end. And it is still that same beginning and end um, with like tense changes and uh, changes. Well, I mean, a lot of changes in the, in the middle. Um, but I had the idea of where it would start and where, where it would end. And that was what I pretty much stuck with. And those were these um, beacons for me really. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't even know that I approached it in a very efficient way. I think I <laughs> pretty much did the opposite. I, in revising, you know, would just kind of, there were moments or there were periods when I was just so lost and didn't know how to revise it at all that I would just open the word document up at random and decide that I was going to like insert something. And then I would just insert it there, you know, like there, like it was not done in any kind of systematic way. And that was part of the reason that it went on for so long. Um, but the novel is like in large part about aimlessness and about figuring out um who you are not that it's actually uh that the narrator is very successful at that but you know it's about like that sort of period in your life or one of those periods in your life when you're not sure like why you're here <laughs> like what you're supposed to be doing how you're supposed to like best be a daughter a friend a significant other to the people around you and so i think that just living that like living that endlessness for many years over many years was part of um that revision process for me and like figuring out what the book would say and how it would say it, it was just like actually living this like despair <laughs> <laughs> So in one sense, kind of easy and also kind of horrible, difficult at the same time. Uh, Yeah. I mean, (laughs) again, it's like a question of remembering, right? Like I kind of remember it as mostly horrible the whole way through, but I'm sure it was also wonderful at points. You mentioned when we were first talking about it, the fragmented nature and the books that you had read that kind of cued you to that style. What were some of those influences? I mean, I love Play As It Lays by Joan Didion. I read in an interview with her that she had intended for it to be read in a single sitting, just in one go. And so I loved that idea, the idea that you could have this small novel that immersed you in a world for however many hours that you sat down to read it. And then I love Why Did I Ever, which is this book by Mary Robeson, um, who was one of my teachers at the University of Florida. That was a book that she wrote, I think, after something like a 10-year hiatus. Like she hadn't written a book in something like a decade. And the way that she wrote that book was um, by driving away in the middle of the night and just jotting down notes on note cards, like in a parking lot or something like that. Like she had a very tumultuous family life. There's a lot of drama in her family. And so she just had to steal away um, to, you know, get these notes down on index cards. And that eventually became a novel. She just like shuffled them all up and put them into a coherent order and like wrote the the, the connective tissue in between. But, um, but yeah, so those were the books that um, made me think I could write a novel because I can write a story, you know, like it felt more possible because of those two books. Can you talk about the process of shopping and selling it? I got my agent, I think in the summer of 2015, 
my agent is Mariah Spence. She um, was a PJ Marks assistant for a long time. He's like a big agent with Janklo and Nesbitt. And uh, she was just sort of starting out on her own. Um, but uh, I found her in the summer and she loved the book. We went back and forth on um, some of her notes and edits and um, sent the book out in the fall. And uh, yeah, I mean, it happened pretty quickly. Like I am really lucky. I was prepared for like years of silence (laughs) because I had heard a lot of horror stories. I'm also just, you know, like, like I said, like a really practical and also terrified person. So, you know, I like, was bracing myself for the worst, but she sent it out and it was, it happened pretty quickly. I think that the book sold about two weeks after she did that. That's amazing. And do, were you in a position of like interviewing editors or choosing between publishing houses? And if so, how did you decide who you ended up with? Um, I was, yeah, I, uh, had a few choices and I wound up with Sarah Bolin, who has since left Holt um, to move to Los Angeles, but but I wound up with her just because, um, I mean, it's so hard to articulate, you know, like a lot of it is just like getting along with the person and the feel and, you know, her suggestions for editing were really spot on. And also, um, I loved the books that she had worked on and like loved what she had acquired in the past. So I felt like to be part of that was going to be a special thing. Um, so that was, yeah, it was really hard. I don't know. It was, it was mostly just like crossing my fingers and hoping that it was the right choice. And I feel like it was cause she was just a really brilliant editor. So when she gave you edits, did you flee to the cabin and hunker down? <laughs> Um, I think that I took a while to even open <laughs> in the letter. Um, but no, everything she said made a lot of sense. I think I, I did it in a really systematic way. Like I broke her letter down into like a to, to-do list and I checked things off and highlighted them when I had done them, you know, like I had to just make it a task and not, not get too emotional about it. Did she send you a physical letter? She did. Yeah. She sent me a whole, she had marked up the whole novel. Um, some of, some of the notes were just like hearts and stars and exclamation points. (laughs) So that was a nice balance. Um, but then also she would circle things. Um, and she sent a long letter that was both, um, larger questions that she had that, you know, would maybe take more work and then just really small nitpicky things. But it was, I think it was like a, a three page letter or something like that. It was, it was really special. Cause I don't think that happens too often anymore. And how did you feel when you got it? Did you, were you, I mean, you said you didn't open it for a while. So were you just like, Oh, I'm going to put this aside for a couple of days. I'm not ready. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, uh, I think that happens on a really tiny scale for everything, right? Like if I write thing and, you know, get it back from an editor, I'm like, ah, do I really have to, I just, I just sent this to you. And do I really have to look at it right now? <laughs> I literally just saw a tweet, always sleep on your editor's notes. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a good idea. It's probably also a good idea to sleep on your own revisions and like, just, just lots of sleep. I'm really, I'm a big sleeper. I love to sleep. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that you just have to steal yourself, not take things personally and just dive in. I think it's really helpful to break down an editor's notes or, you know, notes you might get from a magazine editor or something like that into a to-do list that you can tackle. And that is just like, it's, that is like no more difficult than like doing your laundry, you know? Add a scene here where uh, the father feels emotionally connected to his daughter, you know, like, check. I really want to know, after working on the book for so long, what you did on the day that it was finished. Um, I can't remember, because I don't remember ever thinking, like, 
oh, I'm done. Because I knew, I always knew that it wasn't done. Like there was always more to be done. Um, it's funny because I, I, I was interviewing Deborah Madison, um, at her home in New Mexico and she was telling me about, um, just all the books that she's finished essentially and how it's, it's hard to feel that feeling of, um, like finality and like the fact that, and to celebrate when it's, um, when things are done in quotes, because you know that there's going to be another round of sure. editing, another round of copy edits, and then like still more work when it goes into layout and all of these things. But um, she was telling me that she just makes it a policy to celebrate at every stage. Yeah. And so I've tried to keep that in mind. That's something that I'm really trying to do more of. Like a couple weeks ago, I just turned in this big application for this like funding opportunity. And it's like, I'm gonna go buy myself a drink, like just little make it make it count. Yeah, I think like celebrating those moments. And then also just recognizing like, when the work is going well, and when the work is going smoothly, and it's exciting, and you just like can't wait to wake up and keep working on this thing you're working on. Those are also really special moments and they are pretty rare. (laughs) Like it's more often that I'm sitting at my computer, like despairing over what's in front of me and just like watching the timer, right? Like click down to the two hours, but yeah, just like appreciating those moments when the work goes well and celebrating the moments when you've like uh, finished your project, at least for the moment. Visit us online at wmfapodcast.com to find links to some of the things we talked about today and to subscribe to the show and the WMFA newsletter, which includes episode notes and exclusive content. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Get in touch at hello at wmfapodcast.com or on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.